This is the Building Management Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. As people become more comfortable in the home building automation space, they want to be able to take this commercial as well. We're starting to ask that question, where is my water coming from and what's the quality of it? While we are not recession-proof, it is a recession-insulated industry, so that regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if these manufacturers, these plants, and these entities want to stay open, they need water. Renovations complete. Let's enter the building. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and welcome to another great episode of the MarketScale Building Management Podcast Show. I'm excited for today's plethora of content because we're really getting to showcase a new segment we're bringing to our shows. It's called On the Beat, and it's where we source writers within their industry. So obviously here we're sourcing facility management and building management writers to give some insight on a great article they wrote this week and really peel back the curtain a little bit and reveal some insight that maybe didn't make it into the writing because we all know articles need to be concise, podcasts uh, the opposite of concise. So I'm excited to showcase that piece, excited to showcase some other great content. Um, But to start things off, I want to chat with my good friend, Tyler Kern. He's my cohort here in the podcasting process. I'm sure you've heard him on some of our other podcast shows, but we like to kick it around and hang out on these podcast intros. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Daniel? I am solid. I'm solid. Uh, what have you been working on today? Uh, I know you've got your own shows you're focusing on, putting together a food and beverage one and a yes. hospitality one. Yes. Exciting episodes of both of those shows uh, that came out on Tuesday. Um, I've been working on that today, today being Monday. Right. Time is weird with podcasts, Time is weird when we record these intros, aren't they? Yeah. So by the time you've heard this, our food and beverage and hospitality shows will already be out, which is exciting. What should listeners, if they're interested in those realms, venture over to hear? Yeah, if you're interested in food and beverage, uh, for instance, we have uh, an interesting feature this week on how... Uh, wine club memberships uh, are changing the world of wine. So mm. having wine delivered straight to your door, I know my wife and I do that. Uh, it's much easier sometimes than going out and carrying six bottles of wine out of the grocery <laughs> store. Uh, Which and, also uh, turns some heads too, right? Yeah, like, there's much less shame involved right. <laughs> in that as well uh, when it's just a nice little box that's delivered to your door. Right. Uh, but how that's changing the wine industry and how younger generations are kind of fueling that innovation forward. Uh, so that's on the, uh, the Food and Beverage podcast this week. Also over on the hospitality podcast, we have an interesting look at some of the new technology that's changing how uh, cruise lines are uh, are interacting with their guests. So uh, there's a new uh, product called the Ocean Medallion, which is kind of, uh, wow. it blends the worlds of uh, is IoT. Is that from Titanic? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. No, it, it is in fact a, a, a necklace that people can wear, but oh. uh, it'll do everything from open your room uh, to give waiters uh, like to, to, to within a couple of feet uh, your location so you can order a drink from literally anywhere on the cruise Whoa. and they'll bring it to you. So uh, just changing world of, uh, of how technology is uh, is innovating in the uh, in the space of cruise lines. Wow, so, they, they get you even in your jewelry now. Exactly. Yeah, wow, exactly. That, that's crazy. But if it means you can order a pina colada from just about anywhere, yeah. then count me in. Yeah, definitely. And you get to bling and look fresh while doing so. Right. I, I am also in. I love it. Right. All right. So that's that for some other shows. But obviously, we're on the Building Management Podcast. So uh, some building management that has been going on in our lives personally is the market scale space where we work has almost doubled um, in the last week and a half or so. Uh, we basically tore down some walls, expanded our space and now we have a brand new studio we have a whole bunch of new workspace and uh, market skills growing pretty exponentially and seeing the process from start to finish was definitely an educational experience for me for I'm sure. sure it was for you too because I remember just two whole days of people wiring yards of ethernet cords through the ceiling to the point where I was like, how many ethernet cords do you really need for this building for just expanding the space? But, but you really get to see, you know, when you are just 
sitting in your workspace and you look over and you've got people shoveling Ethernet cords through the ceiling, you've got um, people laying down carpet, adjusting, painting the new studio, uh, putting together the cubicle spaces, you really get a feel for what it's like to construct a workspace from the bottom up and uh, it really gave me a new appreciation for not only the actual labor of putting it all together which is a lot but the design aspect that goes into it all too I mean all the design and all the back end of making sure the networks or the actual workspaces are functional it takes a lot of intentionality is that what you saw too yeah it really does and also just uh, we saw them tear down a wall in our office and literally yeah, open literally. it up and so the moment where you could actually walk from one end of our office to the other was one of those things where it's like, wow. And, yeah. and you kind of got to see the fruits of all of that labor kind of pay off. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it is an incredible amount of planning that goes into that sort of thing. It's not just something where you go and start punching holes in walls, no matter how many episodes of Fixer Upper you've seen. Yeah. Uh, there Although is more planning. In, there is more planning involved <laughs> uh, than just punching holes in walls. Um, and so that was a really an impressive thing to get to see just up close and personal here in our own in our own lives and in our own space. Definitely. And you actually got to speak to Adam Bernhardt. Uh, who runs our building. Yeah. Um, you got to speak to him last week on the podcast, uh, which is probably what our listeners need to go listen to if they haven't already. It was actually two weeks ago. Two that was weeks episode ago. one of uh, wow. Building Management. Now right. we're on time, episode three. Time flies, doesn't it? It does. It sure does. Um, so... Speaking to him, did you gain any insight on just the what it's like expanding a space in this building compared to somewhere else? I mean, does the does his direction or vision for what the Bank of America Plaza should be sort of stand out? Yeah, you know, what's what stood out to me about Adam in particular is just how um, how well he can speak to uh, to keeping things organized and to really interacting uh, on a personal level with people uh, and that being really what he enjoys about his job. And so you really got a sense that that's something that he's very good at is interacting with the people that are the tenants in his building right. uh, and then the people that are also taking the taking part in the construction. Just managing those relationships is something that seems to be really a forte of his um, that I really enjoyed getting to learn more about. So uh, you could go hear him talk about that a little bit more on that episode. Yeah, of the, the first one apparently, podcast. not the second one. Um, um, time flies around time here, Daniel. It really does fly. Uh, yeah, I think especially for a building of this size, like a facility manager for something like this versus a facility manager for, I don't know, even just a small retail space, even just a, a smaller office building, it's just incredible that he can maintain the kind of interpersonal relationships between all the tenants that he does. Yeah. Uh, because we're, how, how many floors? 80 plus, 70 plus at least. Yeah. Uh, it's a monolithic uh, tower and th there's tenants on every floor, at least like three or four on every floor. So, yeah. I mean, do some math and you're looking at hundreds, thousands of individual people that you need to be communicating with. And when one team is expanding on one floor, you got another team expanding on the other. It really takes a lot of logistical um, planning. It takes that human element as well because you want to, I mean, you don't want your tenants to be upset. Yeah. And one of the other things that really stood out to me about that interview with Adam was that it wasn't just, uh, it's not just the building that right. he uh, that he manages. It's also a parking garage. It's also two parking lots. Right. And so it's not just CEOs of businesses that he's interacting with on a regular basis. It's also, you know, security for a parking lot. And so he can put on a lot of different hats and talk to a lot of different people and, uh, and is able to communicate his desire and his vision for each particular property. Uh, and it's not just uh, he wears the suit and talks to the fancy right. folks. It's also down in the nitty gritty and doing the day to day stuff um, that it takes to to also have two parking lots and right. you know and, and a parking garage. So um, that's, Which, that really yeah. impressed me about him. I feel like that's pretty unique to this industry too. Like yes. you don't typically get that kind of back and forth from the front lines to the upper level sort of communication in a lot of other industries. Yeah, I think so you're right. It's uh, it's pretty cool. So. Anyways, this is what we've got going on on this week's episode of the Building Management Show. We're going to get several different 
features. Like I mentioned, we're going to be sourcing a Forbes contributing writer, Chloe Domrovsky. She wrote an article about Amazon HQ2's evacuation plan, which sounds very dramatic, but having been built or planned to be built in Long Island, uh, it's an area prone to flooding and it's something that Amazon needs to be thinking about as it develops its newest headquarter. So we're going to be talking to Chloe about her article, getting some insight on that. We're also going to be digging into the idea of green roofs, which I saw a lot when I was in Spain a couple of years ago, um, but not so much in the States. And apparently it's starting to catch on a little more. Our market scale host, Kaylee Gerlitz, digs into this, gets some more context from a Canadian company called Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. It's definitely a concept that I'd like to see more in my cities. Um, I, I don't know, just the idea of taking that flat, boring and pretty hot concrete space and turning it into, I don't know, an area for life, an area that represents what used to be on the ground that is now built up, you know, 10, 30, 70 stories. So uh, pretty incredible stuff. And we're also going to be chatting about smart buildings, which isn't anything new, but we're digging specifically into energy management, which is still a tricky thing, especially when you're dealing with massive buildings like ours and you're dealing with massive HVAC systems. It's uh, definitely a balancing process. So we're going to be speaking with Tim Gross. He's the CEO of E-Squared Energy Advisors based out of the Dallas area as well. So looking forward to getting some of that local insight on this topic. It's a packed show, Tyler. I hope you're ready. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go for an (laughs) exciting episode of the Building Management Podcast. Ooh, I am ready too. All right, let's dig in. So first, I want to talk about a piece that I saw on our website, though it's not a piece we wrote. MarketScale is also a curating platform for some of the best stories in each of our industries. So we curated a Forbes piece on Amazon Headquarters 2 and their evacuation plan, or perhaps their lack of one. Uh, Their second headquarters is set to be split between Virginia and New York, specifically Long Island City, which is an area known for flooding during coastal storms. And it puts Amazon in a tricky position to build a functional, safe, and thoughtful new facility with plans in place in case of a disaster, not only for their own employees, but for the community. Forbes contributing writer Chloe Domrovsky, president and CEO of Disaster Recovery Institute International, breaks down her article and tells us how facility managers in Long Island have already been battling this flooding issue for decades. All right. So again, we're joined by Chloe Domrovsky, contributor for Forbes and president and CEO of Disaster Recovery Institute International. Chloe, great to have you on our On the Beat segment. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Daniel. How are you? I'm great. Thank you again for giving us some insight on this article. I did really enjoy all the points you laid out. And, uh, you know, I think it brings up a really interesting point, which is as these large companies expand and look to bring with them so much business and um, economy to an area. Um, I mean, as you can see, so many cities were fighting for Amazon's second headquarters to locate there. And now, well, we know where they're going to be at. And uh, of course, that brings with it some challenges and making sure that they're prepared for the area that they're going to be integrating in and bringing families and jobs to. So in your article, You talked a lot about how Long Island City is rather prone to flooding, and I think it's important to understand why uh, or how facility managers in the area already adapt to this. So if you could tell me what methods of preparedness and disaster relief do facility managers in the Long Island area already use, and how can Amazon's second headquarters look to them for best practices? Sure, of course. So... You know, it struck me when I read that Amazon was coming to New York City, that sounded like an of course moment. And then when I heard that it was going to be Long Island City, my first instinct was, oh, that's a great choice. But then I I said, did they know that much of it was underwater during Hurricane Sandy? And how quickly we forget that was only 2012. Right. Um, so that encouraged me to, to dig a little deeper and to see, you know, where specifically, you know, it's a pretty big neighborhood. It constantly is expanding. I was curious whether they were really going to be kind of waterfront or whether they were going to be further inland, in which case it wouldn't be so much of a problem. 
Um, it looks like they are going to build their facility right on the water with those gorgeous views of Midtown Manhattan. I mean, it's a lovely area. It just means that they're going to have to take into account something that they may not have considered when they were looking at all of the different factors that went into their choice of location. And that is really the resilience planning aspect of it. Um, that area, like I said, it is in the 100-year floodplain, according to FEMA's flood maps. And so it is important for organizations to look at this when they're looking at uh, building a facility or buying a facility, um, homeowners as well. Uh, but of course, very few people know about it. The, the level of awareness is maybe not so great. I think after hurricanes happen, like Hurricane Harvey, for example, we get a little bit of, of talk in the news about the National Flood Insurance Program or other programs that you know, FEMA has or issues about flood insurance. And then it sort of goes away and people forget. Right. We all love to live by the water. We love to have facilities by the water. And so uh, it's a nice place to be. And so people, people forget. But uh, it's really important that Amazon take this into account. Now that they have made this decision, there are certainly things that they can do, um, even though they've decided to locate themselves in an AE zone, flooding zone, which is, you know, prime flooding area. Um, in the middle of the hundred year floodplain that they'll have to take into account. Right. And of course, you know, some of that, some of that is regulatory. Um, federal laws don't require the disclosure of previous flooding for an area when you're, when you're buying something and the local laws vary very much. And then of course the laws governing what you can and cannot build where you cannot, can, can and cannot build also vary. So they're going to have to kind of look at the, the, the different, federal regulations, state and local, which may or may not conflict. Um, of course, New York City has a lot of different um, regulation and, and building codes that they advise on, but those are heavily influenced by industry and developers who, of course, want build, 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 and they want, you know, kind of more relaxed building codes rather than kind of the maximum building codes that might make a, a, a neighborhood or a facility much more resilient to climate flooding. I think the other thing to, to keep in mind is that the, the FEMA flood maps that do exist, the way that they're created is based on historical flooding and, and the current situation, and they don't take into account any sort of future forecasting sea level rise as a result of climate change or anything like that. So the smart building that is being done now along waterways um, in this area, of course, and, and anywhere that might be affected is to not just look at what is currently an issue, but what might be an issue into the future, because presumably they're not planning to build a facility for only the next 10 years. Right. And I'm glad you brought up that federal and state law are a bit inconsistent on revealing information on whether the land you're building on has a high risk of flooding. It seems odd to me that that isn't standardized. Why do you feel like this isn't something that sort of has uniformity across even just between states or a federal level? And how does this affect facility managers specifically in the Long Island area? Standardized, Daniel, you have such a high expectation for what we're going <laughs> to have. I mean, look at the state of our subways and our infrastructure, right? The, the state and the local governments can't even get, get their act together to figure out how to fix, you know, trillion dollar infrastructure shortfalls that we're looking at um, across the world. Um, certainly a lot of those are facing places like New York City that have a lot of aging infrastructure and a lot of issues. Mm. So it's unlikely right. that we're going to have standardization. And of course, some of that is because the local governments um, are dealing with the local area. They know it best. Um, this changes dramatically based on what area you're in. So there's always going to be some sort of tension there, some sort of difference um, that's going to govern it. And, and facilities managers definitely need to be aware of this. You know, I think it's important for them to check in with uh, the, their local floodplain manager in their area, talk to, you know, whether it's a building inspector or zoning officer who best understands the specific requirements. And that is, of course, assuming that the facilities managers, the business continuity professionals, the risk management professionals are even included in this conversation from the beginning, which is not always the case and really needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh I can see that being an issue if they're not present from the very beginning, um, you know, then trying to catch up on that information or, you know, if they're treated like a second thought, then it's uh yeah, it's not going to be very efficient. Yeah, all too often they these these groups are are put in place and then they get 
brought in long after kind of strategic decisions are made. Those are thought of as, you know, business decisions. But a lot of the business decisions are made by people who are thinking in a very kind of um, risk-taking, gambling sort of way. And the, the people who are charged with then cleaning up the mess or dealing with the consequences afterward are not always included in that decision. More resilient organizations are starting to change the way that they do that and having this conversation earlier on. And that can really be a game changer um, moving into the future to prevent or mitigate risk. And then once something does happen, having a plan in place for dealing with the consequences. Right, exactly. So let's look at plans in place for Amazon. So obviously they are already decided on building a second headquarters in an area that is pretty prone to flooding. So uh, beyond just ensuring the safety of its own facility, you also mentioned a community preparedness plan being very important for Amazon. Uh, So walk me through a bit of some of those best practices that you think Amazon needs to employ to make sure that not only is their facility and their workers safe, but it also... I don't know, has a a larger mindset for that area and comes in ready to assist the people that already live there and make, I guess, a a community-centric statement. Sure, of course. So the first thing, of course, that they have to do is they have to deal with their own campus and make sure that it is resilient, but then also that its resilience doesn't have a negative effect on the surrounding area. So they, they can deal with their facility first, make sure that, you know, whether it's elevated or whether it's floodproof, they probably have some flexibility in that regard, but they want to make sure that it can withstand the floodwaters and that they communicate that it is designed in this way, but, but so that it also um, allows for proper drainage and so forth so that the surrounding area is nev- negatively impacted. They are going to have to do a risk assessment for their space to make sure that they have the, the proper insurance requirements, that they understand what kinds of risks, not just flooding, but otherwise that they face and then do what's called a business impact analysis to see how that would affect them. Then they have to have strategies in place and a plan in place for them. But the reason why it's so important for them to not just look at Amazon and the effect on Amazon's campus is because let's say, for example, that a flood comes through, a hurricane comes through and affects the whole area very dramatically. All the lights go out, all the power is out in Long Island City, people don't have you know, heating in their homes. It can be really cold here sometimes during hurricane season. Um, And they don't have, they can't necessarily, they don't have access to public transportation. They can't necessarily always evacuate. But the Amazon facility is the only thing around that is high and dry and that the fences are high, (laughs) the kind of the moat bridges are pulled up and and then they get accused of, of sort of saying, okay, why is Amazon okay when the community around it is suffering so much? That's not a good look. Right. We saw this, for example, during Hurricane Sandy with Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs had a great resilience strategy in place. They were high and dry. They were surrounded by sandbags. They kept their lights on. By the way, their regulators require this as a, as a critical financial institution. Um, but that really didn't sit well with their, with their neighbors, with the local community, because they just sort of, you know, closed their gates and kept themselves um, prepared and didn't help anybody else especially Amazon, which is really customer dependent, uh, that would that would be a, a real um, community relations nightmare for yeah. them if they were to do something like that. Yeah, I, I could see that being uh, being tough to come back from, especially, you know, I mean, there's a lot of eyes on Amazon already, so good to make positive strides, especially as they enter a new community. Right, because they went through this whole very public bidding process, which they got kind of a lot of blowback for. There was a lot of excitement from the governments, and then a lot of people saying, you know, okay, um, we're going to have reduced tax revenues, and so what are you going to do for the local community in exchange? I think this is one area where they can really make a positive impact, and they could say, okay, not only are we going to take care of our facility, but we're going to make sure that uh, we take care of our community as a whole, whether that's you know, building some sort of on the water kind of seawall type things, or they have some sort of evacuation site that people know that they can go to in the event of something happening. They can do some, you know, community drills and exercises. They can really make it a part of their uh, corporate and, you know, social responsibility strategy um, as they move into this new community. And I think that'll go a long way to, to building some positive relations for them. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. 
All right, well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on On the Beat and giving us a little more insight into your piece. For our listeners, if you want to read the piece, you can find it linked in our uh, full-body post for the show. Again, it's called Why Amazon HQ2 Will Need an Evacuation Plan, written by Forbes contributor Chloe Domrovsky. Chloe, great chatting with you. Look forward to chatting again soon. It was my pleasure, Daniel. Me too. The idea of city buildings topped with gardens is more than a pipe dream or a fad across the seas. Though it's been a European staple for decades, in the last few years, the trend has become more viable in America, or at least more present in conversation. Though pricier up front, green roofs help save costs over time by keeping buildings cooler in summer months and warmer in winter months, not to mention their ability to purify water and minimize flooding and counteract global warming. To get some context on this growing fascination, pun intended, MarketScale host Kaylee Gerlitz spoke with Canadian company Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Building Management Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Kaylee Gerlitz, and today we'll be talking about how green roofs are one of the leading eco-friendly initiatives in construction. Joining us today to talk all about green roofs is Stephen Peck, the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Thanks for coming on, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities? Sure. Um, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities is a 501c6 industry association. It's membership supported and run. We operate in both Canada and the United States, and our mission is to develop the green roof and wall industry in both of those countries. Um, We do that through a wide variety of different um, measures, including advocacy for policy to support the implementation of these um, technologies. We also develop standards. We hold events. We publish a, a quarterly magazine called the Living Architecture Monitor. Uh, we have an awards program, collect statistics on the size of the market, and a whole range of ways that we support our, our members in terms of promoting their services to implement green roofs and walls across North America. So what exactly is a green roof and how are they constructed? Green roofs have actually been around for a long time. The new um, technologies are lightweight in nature. So we have um, a system that we um, put in place, which includes high quality waterproofing, um, a root repellent layer to keep any roots from potentially affecting that waterproofing over the long term. Um, There's a drainage layer that allows a, a green roof to uh, let water shed off of it even during uh, during major storms. Um, there's a filter cloth usually above the drainage layer to keep the drainage layer uh, working effectively. Then we have engineered growing medium on top of that. And the depth of the grow- growing medium uh, determines what kind of a green roof it is. So six inches or less of growing medium is called an extensive green roof, which has a limited plant palette, mostly sedums and some types of grasses. And then an intensive green roof is more than six inches depth of growing medium, which allows for a much wider palette of plants, including even trees and shrubs. So we have a wide variety of different types of applications out there in the marketplace. So what kind of plants are typically used for these green roofs? Is it more succulents and water tolerant or is it, you know, you mentioned grasses and shrubs? Plants are specific to the climate. They're also specific to the microclimate um, involved. Some roof areas may be partially shaded, for example, uh, or have uh, full sun. So it's important to understand what the what type of microclimate you're dealing with to determine plant selection. And then also, of course, the, the growing medium, the engineering growing medium has to be designed uh, and specified in a way that will support the the plant materials um, for the long over the long term. For the uh, intensive green roofs, which are usually uh, amenity decks where the, the occupants of the building or the general public um, has access to the to, to the roof, um, they're typically a wider range of plants. Um, 
We have um, uh, woody plants like tr small trees and shrubs, and we also have um, a wider variety of um, annual and perennial plants that are um, used in these uh, types of green roof applications. The, the larger scale or extensive green roofs, um, which have a much lower uh, weight requirement in terms of the structural loading, um, are much, don't have the same profile, they have a much narrower profile. So the, usually we are using succulents uh, on top of those uh, systems. And there are mats that you get, just like sod now, where you can roll out the succulents and the green roof is 80 to 90% and covered immediately upon, upon completion. And there's a wide variety of succulents that are, that are used um, in the marketplace, but most of them are pretty tough plants uh, in terms of drought tolerance and their, their root systems grow horizontally rather than uh, vertically. And, um, you know, they're designed for, for the long haul. Okay. Interesting. So how does the cost of an installing a green roof compare to, you know, more traditional roofing materials? Well, a green roof system is definitely um, costs more than a traditional roofing system. But the thing to do is to look at what the function of that green roof is and how it fits into the, the plan for the building. I think what we've seen happen, Kaylee, over the next 20 years, the last 20 years or so, is that people are looking at rooftops as, a, as part of the building, not just a place to put HVAC equipment or window washing equipment, uh, tie downs, but as an actual um, functional part of the building. So we're seeing now a lot more green roofs that are being built for just to help run the facility more efficiency, efficiently by reducing air conditioning costs in the summertime and cooling uh, heating costs in the wintertime. We're seeing green roofs installed uh, as a means of managing stormwater, meeting stormwater regulatory requirements for a site. We're seeing green roofs um, uh, designed for aesthetic uh, purposes because there's some visible aspect of that roof. We're seeing green roofs put on because the roof membranes underneath will last two times, if not longer, than a traditional roofing system. So, yes, there is an upfront um, cost in terms of implementing a green roof relative to a traditional roof, but there are a lot of ongoing annual and one-time benefits that are generated. And a, and a study done by um, Arab Engineering for uh, General Services Administration about eight, eight years ago found that the payback, simple payback for an extensive green roof of about 5,000 square feet is in the neighborhood of five to six years, just based on things like energy efficiency and gains and um, benefits to wa waterproofing membranes and, uh, and stormwater related benefits. So you talked a little bit about the benefits to the buildings, but could you talk to me about the environmental impacts that these green roofs are making on the environment? Well, the green roofs function in a lot of different ways. One of the, the sort of big picture ideas behind a green roof, which is different from how we've done things traditionally, is that you can use a green roof to capture the, the rainwater that falls upon it, the storm water, it's often called. And instead of uh, that water rushing off the roof and carrying with it uh, all manner of, of materials and atmospheric pollution, the, the leaves and the um, growing media and the drainage layer can be designed to hold that storm water uh, uh, on the roof and, and, and make it available for use by the plants so that they can evapotranspirate that water back into the atmosphere. Um, and that cools this building down, it cools the city down. It also means there's less water rushing into our stormwater sewage system, which can mean less combined sewer overflow where the sanitary sewage mixes with the stormwater and goes into our rivers and streams and creeks and estuaries. It can mean less flooding um, it can mean better uh, water quality uh, in the, for the receiving water bodies, which means fishable, swimmable, drinkable. Um, so surface areas of our city are a real opportunity to both cool the city down in the face of rising temperatures through the urban heat island. We can cool cities down if we ca and we can reduce flooding and the impact of um, storms by capturing that water uh, in and around buildings and using it to grow and, uh, and make plants healthy. And that's one of the really big benefits. Of course, there's biodiversity, which is a, a specialized benefit. You can design a green roof for certain species of plants and, and insects. That's a very protected area. Um, and there's an emerging um, field of uh, research and study about how best to do that. Um, there's the health and well-being benefits for individuals. There's air quality benefits that come from having more plants 
uh, in a city which scrub out pollutants. Um, you know, the benefits just keep building and building and building. And I don't really think there's any technology actually other than a green roof that has quite as many benefits to offer uh, a building and its inhabitants in a city. I think it's pretty much untouchable in terms of how much it can offer in terms of both public and private benefits. Yeah, it sounds incredible. I had no idea that, you know, these green roofs and all these plants that make it had so much environmental impact on the community and, you know, just for cities. I, I had no idea about the sewage or cooling buildings or anything about that. That's super interesting. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize, um, have a lot of knowledge about how the world works or what's happening in the city. And uh, one of the things that Green Roofs also have an opportunity to educate people about basic ecology in cities and what's happening when the rain falls and when the sun comes down and, and what the impact of creating buildings where there's not a lot of um, um, pervious, uh, impervious surfaces. So the water lands on all these surfaces and runs off of them, which is a very unnatural situation. And I think if we're going to do well in the face of climate change, we need to have more and more buildings um, implementing green roofs and walls. And that's why we're seeing cities all over the world right now, from Paris to Berlin to Tokyo uh, to Seoul to San Francisco, Toronto, New York. All of these cities, Kaylee, are implementing policies to either provide a financial incentive for existing building owners to implement green roofs, or they've begun or are already requiring green roofs on new developments. Because there are just so many benefits, both to the building owners and developers, but also to the general community by utilizing these wasted spaces in our cities. You know, I know a lot of homes and buildings in California are implementing these living roofs and walls. I know when my family was building our home, we designed it to have a gray water system, a living wall, and solar panels to, you know, help diminish our carbon footprint. So segueing off of that and on to my last question, how do you think that the knowledge of green roofs could be spread in North America as a way to make cities more sustainable? Well, we do a lot of that, Kaylee, in our work. We have a magazine called the Living Architecture Monitor, um, and we track green roof and wall developments uh, on a quarterly basis, and we report back on them, and we have interviews and case studies of cool projects, award-winning projects. And I think we need ultimately more policymakers to recognize that uh, that green roofs and walls, that, that real estate in our cities is very valuable. And with a little bit of policy um, initiative, it's possible to take these barren roof and wall areas and turn them into a force for more sustainable, healthy and resilient communities, not to mention more um, cost-effective buildings. And so we're seeing more and more um, uh, policymakers uh, in many governments looking to um, implement these types of policies, either financial or regulatory policies, to make green roofs and walls part of the future of their communities. And when we get enough of them built, Kaylee, that's when we start to have a really important impact on things like the urban heat island, which is the increasing temperatures in our cities relative to the countryside. And, uh, and that has all kinds of negative impacts when we overheat our cities. So by putting in green roofs and walls, we're able to dramatically reduce the urban heat island. Same thing with reflective roofs and urban forests and other forms of green infrastructure. These are really valuable types of infrastructure that we need more and more cities to uh, wake up to and start to um, develop these policies to make happen so that we can live in healthier communities as we move forward. Thanks, Stephen, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's Building Management Podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. Make sure to leave a reading and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Kaylee Gerlitz, and I hope you feel more knowledgeable about the ways green roofs are reducing our carbon footprints.
All right, we're going to finish off today's episode with a look at smart buildings, which isn't anything new, but energy management is still a tricky thing in smart buildings, especially when you're dealing with massive buildings and massive HVAC systems, just to name one piece of the puzzle. IoT tech has become more commoditized and in essence made this more accessible for a corporate company, but it's still not the building standard. Tim Gross, CEO of E-Squared Energy Advisors, thinks it should be, and it's about time, especially if you want your business to thrive financially and in the public eye. I'll let Tim do some of the explaining. All right, joining me now on the podcast is Tim Grossi. He's the CEO and Executive Director of E-Squared Energy Advisors. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, sir. Uh, yes, thanks, Tyler. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So we're, ta- we're talking today about IoT and smart building technology. And I want to start off just by getting uh, an overview of the marketplace as you see it. So where do you see the energy IoT marketplace today? And maybe give us a sense of how it's gotten to where it is today. A very good question, Tyler. And it's really an exciting marketplace right now. And there's uh, more opportunities, more changes than we've seen in probably 150 years. I liken the situation we're in now to uh, the Industrial Revolution when uh, we went into the uh, the carbon age, uh, basically, in with the with, uh, internal combustion engines. We're seeing that same kind of shift now in energy, and we're shifting from that carbon-based uh, economy into the renewables and the energy-efficient economy. Uh, building owners and uh, countries, for that matter, are mandating that uh, buildings are reaching net zero uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, many companies have uh, goals in mind for that to uh, get to net zero by 2030 or or sooner. And really, the technologies are here where we can do that. And it's a really exciting time in the industry. And I think there's just a, a plethora of, of opportunities for building portfolio owners and companies to not only uh, contribute to energy efficiency, but also to abate uh, climate change, global warming, and to uh, really contribute to a better future. Absolutely. So you're talking about some of the benefits there of this uh, of increased energy efficiency, whether it's you know uh, you know kind of a greener future, helping the environment, and that sort of thing. What are what are some other tangible benefits uh, to increasing energy efficiency using smart building technology? Well, you get a lot of operational efficiency improvements, Tyler. Uh, IoT technology enables uh, previous disparate systems to operate together and to be measured and monitored in real time. So whereas before you might have a building security system, uh, uh, energy management system, a BMS system, all operating separately. And um, today you can combine that on a single pane of glass, see your entire building, and for that matter, see your entire portfolio and drill down to a building in a particular state or region that you'd like to and drill all the way down to that particular HVAC system, that particular rooftop unit and monitor it in real time. So it's really advanced to where you have a lot better granularity of data and sensor technology that allows you to manage your portfolio that much better from an operational side. And also from a comfort and employee productivity side, you're able to keep that building in a much better uh, temperature zone, uh, humidity zone, and keep the employees and the tenants uh, happier and more productive, which can translate into uh, uh, a lot more energy or a lot more uh, savings than the energy portion of, of the savings. Uh, just an uh, increase in three to four percent in employee productivity. Uh, Harvard studies have shown that that uh, translates into about a sixty-five hundred. Uh, dollar benefit for a company per employee per year, which is a huge number uh, for um, employee productivity. So that actually dwarfs the energy efficiency aspect and just compounds the benefits of uh, IoT and energy efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. That's something you can obviously take back to, you know, uh, to tenants of buildings and say, you know, look, 
uh, we are doing a good job of, of making sure that your employees are comfortable and, you know, in doing so, you, you have a more productive work environment and that sort of thing. That's definitely a great selling point uh, that maybe is something that I didn't necessarily think of just off the top of my head of one of those tangible benefits. Um, and you're mentioning some of the new technologies that, that are making this all possible. What are some, uh, what are some of the other new, uh, new innovations that are available in this space that are really driving things forward? Uh, sure, Tyler. Uh, some of the areas where we see IoT uh, gaining a strong foothold are in the areas of chiller optimization, uh, where you can monitor the chiller plan in a building in real time. Uh, for instance, the building that you're located in, Bank of America Plaza, uh, has a large chiller system, as do most large uh, commercial offices or uh, many manufacturers. And what we can do is go in with IoT optimization and increase the energy efficiency of the existing chiller plant without any retrofits and monitor it and manage it better via IoT and smart building technology and to help the central plant management team uh, operate that chiller uh, better 24-7, 365. So we can uh, put some uh, mechanical overrides on the system that helps uh, the engineering team run the building better. It also helps the energy uh, profile of the building as well as, uh, like I mentioned before, the em employee uh, comfort levels. An another area would be in ch uh, rooftop uh, HVAC optimization, where we can do the same thing for existing rooftop units in a commercial building. Uh, we can come in and overlay uh, building controls on top of the existing units and get typically a 20 to 40% energy efficiency increase, sometimes more. Uh, by doing so. Uh, and, and that is something we can um, uh, do for a building without replacing, again, any of the existing equipment. So uh, it can go on top of the existing train, carrier, Lennox units, any brand, and optimize the existing units. Plus, it provides real-time monitoring how those uh, units are running, and it saves a lot of maintenance costs uh, in, in so far as uh, there's uh, no need to set up, up a uh, service tech if, if the unit is running properly. On the other hand, if there's something wrong with the unit, which we can tell through fault detection in real time and send um, uh, warnings or alerts to the building management team, they can go up and fix that uh, rooftop unit before it causes any additional problems and totally goes out and blows a compressor or, or has a serious issue. So. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, maintenance uh, savings aspects and equipment extension uh, available with IoT and smart building technology as well. Wow, that's really interesting. You could you could retrofit older you know uh, AC units and that sort of thing to to fit this new technology. That's a really uh, really nice innovation, a really nice perk that, that that's able to happen. Uh, just a quick. A quick browse across the E Squared website shows that you guys have a, a wide range of clients, be it the you know the New York Yankees or IKEA or FedEx. Uh, so, is there a difference in helping a client like, let's say, the Yankees that might have a different type of facility that they need uh, that that they need advice on, uh, as opposed to maybe Pepsi or IKEA or one of the other bigger clients that uh, that E Squared has worked with? Well, yes, we we have a variety of technologies. We're a technology aggregator, uh, Tyler. And we work with uh, dozens of leading uh, energy efficiency uh, technology manufacturers and service providers. So we go into a, com a company or an organization like the Yankees. We identify some needs that they might have for energy efficiency. And, and for example, that was a LED lighting retrofit for the Yankees um, example. And then uh, it's a, a matter of bringing that technology to that company. So uh, we have a, a, a wide tool chest we can draw upon to help companies uh, depending upon their needs and what they're looking to accomplish. With the Yankees, they accomplished a huge energy savings of uh, around 70%, plus uh, their players uh, all said that they had improved lighting, uh, the fans had a better game day experience, uh, television viewers, it increased their uh, uh, viewing. Uh, so it provides a lot of benefits just above and beyond the energy savings. So uh, projects like that are, are great. Um, we do a lot of less uh, 
high profile projects than that. And uh, those are, are just as important as well. And, and we can help uh, pretty much any company uh, from mid-market up to a Fortune 50 company. Absolutely. And uh, and, and I'm wondering, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, when we t- when we talk about energy efficiency, it's it's a uh, it can be a green initiative and in pushing back against you know global warming and climate change and that sort of thing. What are some measures of progress that we can see in that uh, in that arena? Is there is there a way to measure progress and in a standard that we're we're holding ourselves up against? Uh, sure, good question. Uh, many companies uh, here in the last four or five years have established uh, sustainability departments. A couple of years ago, I attended a uh, environmental leaders conference in Denver, and I would say probably half the Fortune 500 attended uh, that conference. So many companies are setting up uh, separate divisions where they're doing nothing but monitoring uh, their sustainability levels. And of the sustainability portion, energy is a, a very large piece of that. So. Um, it's becoming more and more important as consumers are demanding that companies be responsible. Uh, companies are demanding it of themselves, uh, despite uh, the headwinds we've had here recently with the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris Accord. Uh, public companies and organizations are all uh, putting their oars in the water, so to speak, in trying to uh, make progress uh, in terms of becoming more sustainable and lowering their carbon footprint. That being said, there's a lot that we have left to do. Uh, It's imperative that companies actually go out and get these projects started and start uh, reducing their energy as soon as possible. And these are measures that are very um, economical and they can actually generate a positive cash flow for companies. So there's no economic reason why they shouldn't uh, initiate projects. So, from an economic standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, uh, these projects are excellent. And we really need to, if I, I would say one thing in the space, uh, we really need to accelerate the adoption of IoT and smart building. Uh, it's a lot more affordable than, than uh, what many people think. And it's uh, the benefits are immense. Well, we're living in that uh, in that age of innovation, Tim Grossi, and uh, that's certainly an exciting thing to get to see and to get to experience uh, and to look around us and actually realize all of the innovations that are going on around us. It's uh, it's a pretty exciting time uh, to be alive and to be in this space. So, uh, Tim Grossi, CEO and Executive Director of E Squared Energy Advisors. Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tyler. All right, everyone. Unfortunately, that does it for today's episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed today's segment of On the Beat. I really think that's going to be one of my favorite segments going forward, mostly because that journalist-to-journalist conversation is always fruitful. But it's a chance to showcase some other great work in the industry, which I think is what podcasts are for, Uh, at least what our podcasts are for. It's for showcasing great thought leadership and great innovation, or at least just some powerful opinions in the space. So if you have a great piece you've written in building management, you think it deserves a spotlight, shoot it my way and I'll be sure to look it over. And if it's worthy, then we'll put it on the show. Again, shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Looking forward to hearing from y'all. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. 